0: Vivid flashbacks. Okay, I want to go into something that I have never publicly addressed before, at least in a platform like this. And it's because of shame, toxic shame. It's because of guilt. It's because I can't believe I allowed someone to do this to me. I can't believe how stupid I was in a lot of areas. And I can't believe it at 16 years old, I didn't really realize what was happening. Welcome to Digging Through Dominoes, a podcast that looks at mental, physical, and emotional trauma through real and inspiring conversations. This is your safe haven that welcomes you in, but also isn't afraid to talk about what hurts the most. And now, here's your host, Terry Anderson. In reading the book, The Body Keeps the Score, by Bessel van der Kolk. I came across a quote from Jessica Stern in her book, Denial, A Memoir of Terror. What a title. She states, Some people's lives seem to flow in a narrative. Mine had many stops and starts. That's what trauma does. It interrupts the plot. It just happens. And then life goes on. No one prepares you for it. That's such a powerful statement. And I find it very true. And I would add on to that not only does no one prepare you for the trauma, how to deal with the trauma, how to get past the trauma, but they actually diminish you for being traumatized. You were weak, you're chaotic. Why can't you get past it? You know, duh, because it's ingrained in my brain, because my trauma, probably is hers, started in infancy. I'm pretty sure pre-verbal infancy. And you, how do you do that when, you're, when your brain is still forming in those first few years? It's rewiring. The trauma is rewiring you. How do you get past it? And how dare anyone say, it's too much for me. Just get over it. Snap your fingers and you'll be okay. You don't need to go to a doctor because a doctor doesn't know anything. Well, in some time, some cases that has proven very true for me. Why are you trying to figure out what's wrong with you? Why don't you just move forward like I have? Survivors of traumatic abuse in my view are stigmatized. They are put down, they are shamed. I think for several reasons, if we acknowledge their trauma, we might have to acknowledge our own. If we acknowledge their trauma, we may have to look at ourselves and say, why didn't I stop what they were going through? We may have to look at ourselves and say, what is wrong with me as a human that I can't have compassion on someone that's been through what these people have had happen to them? We might actually have to admit we are wrong. I remember in with my son, I remember with my son Joshua, they had autism and one of my other boys, most of my kids were homeschooled on and off. But one of my other sons and Joshua, I had the same exact conversation with the school district when they were not being treated properly because of their disabilities. And that was, do you want me to cast their head? Do you want me to put a cast on their leg? What do you want me to do so you will realize their unseen disability is real? They're not being jerks. They're not being crybabies. They need help. I don't know what it is about trauma. I don't know what it is about mental illness that so many people are afraid to acknowledge it. Sometimes I wonder, is it because if you acknowledge it, you have to acknowledge you may have the same symptoms. You may have the same problem. I totally got off track there, but you know what? That's okay because this is my podcast. And by the way, Welcome to episode seven of Digging Through Dominoes, and I am your host, Terry Anderson. This is my story. This is your story, and we're going to try and get through it. I mentioned Bessel van der Kolk and his book, The Body Keeps the Score. Is it going to focus? Probably not. I inadvertently in the last episode attributed this book to another person. Thankfully, I didn't remember the entire name. And I was wrong, of course. I've just began to dig into this, but some of the things that I've I've seen so far are pretty intriguing. Dr. Vandercock wondered how horrific experiences are able to cause people to become stuck what happens in the minds and the brains of these people that seem to become frozen in their trauma and trapped in a place that they desperately want to flee? If I look at that, knowing the trauma that I myself have gone through, one of the things I think of, and after doing some reading and research and a lot of therapy, my opinion is when we are traumatized at certain ages whether it's CPTSD, PTSD, certain events, abuse, parts of us get stuck at the age in which we were traumatized, abused, terrified. And those, those segments of us really can't get past that age we were when those things happened to us. We, we continue to see the world, I think, a lot of times, through those eyes of that five-year-old, that six-year-old, that Vietnam War veteran. And it's difficult to move forward because the trauma was so significant that it's with us all the time. Van der Kolk, in in his practice, in his schooling, in his continual learning, came across a book by Abram, I hope I say this right, Kartner. Cardiner, K-A-R-D-I-N-E-R, describing his observations of War War I veterans. He noticed that those suffering from traumatic neurosis, as it was called at the time, develop a chronic vigilance for sensitivity to threat. I know some of you out there can identify with what I'm talking about because we're in that hypervigilant state there is always a threat and when there's not a threat we still think that there's a threat all right that's the way our brain is wired that's the way our brain was changed by the trauma one of the ways cardiner concluded that most post-traumatic stress. This may be a real eye-opener for some of you, but for many of you, if you're listening to this podcast, you're going to say, "Uh, yeah, exactly. Cardner concluded that the post-traumatic stress isn't all in a person's head. In a way it is, I guess you could say, because it does change your brain. But what he's getting at are that the symptoms have their origin in the entire body's response to the original traumas. The things that the doctors have seen, and we've been over this, but I th- I'm gonna, I'm going to elaborate on some of this with some of my personal experiences. And the reason I'm, wa- I'm doing this is because I want you to realize I've been there. I know this, this is my road. I want people not to feel so alone. If I tell my story, and believe me, there's a lot of it, it might encourage someone else to get help. Intrusive thoughts is one of the things that they have observed. One of the things that we've spoken about. Intrusive thoughts a lot of times are of the original traumas or trauma. There are some that I have that I push back. I don't want to think about them. They traumatize me even more. And I don't, some of them, I don't want to know what that flashback response, that thought is. It just comes into my mind of hands. That I think is one of the ones that I really don't want to know about, as well as bathtubs. Something, if I see one, something will come into my mind and I'm pushing it out. I don't want to know about it. Another intrusive thought, and I'm going, this is really the first time I've said this publicly, and I'll talk about it a little bit later on as well. My family did not speak of anything. They were very reserved, most of the time, mainly my mother uh, my dad was pretty reserved unless he was drinking, and then he was very friendly and very charismatic and talked a lot and but our they didn't really talk to us; they talked at us if that. Makes sense. We learned at a very, or I learned at a very early age, we didn't take our problems. I didn't take my problems to my parents. One of the reasons, I'll give you an example. One of my siblings and I were going to a convenience store. We were walking from our home. I think the store is probably about a mile or two away from the house. And we were walking down, I even remember the name of the street. We were walking down Center Street. And this next part I only remember because Price is Right was playing. It was very popular at that time and it was on everyone's TV in the evening. And they gave away a lot of cars. One of the cars they gave away was a Le Mans in sort of a tannish brown, uh, bronze gold kind of a color. When my brother and I were walking, to the convenience store, and a car went past us. I noticed it because it was like, oh my gosh, I just saw that car on on, uh, The Price is Right. A few minutes later, it came back the other way, a little more slowly. A little bit later, it went past us again, a little more slowly. It came back, and then it passed us again. Then I'm starting to get a little freaked out. You know, in school we were learning about Stranger Danger and McGruff the Crime Dog. And I don't think any of you know what I'm talking about. So I was already on alert. This, this car stopped. I can remember the man's face vaguely. He had on glasses. He was probably in his mid-30s. He was, he was a little heavy. His hair was parted. It was sort of a sandy blonde color. He asked us if we wanted to get in, if we wanted a ride. Thanks to school and Stranger Danger and McGruff the Crime Dog, if that's what he was called, I knew that wasn't a safe thing to do. I grabbed my brother and we ran. We ran as fast as we could through our neighborhood. We ran and we ran and we ran and we ran and we ran until we got home. We got into the house and my father had been, was home at that time. It's like, he said, what is wrong with you two? Dad, somebody tried to kidnap us. And we, I, at that time, I was crying. I was panicked that someone had tried to kidnap, kidnap us. And my dad said, well, what'd the car look like? And I told him, what happened? I told him, and he said, well, did you get the license plate? Well, dad, we didn't have anything to write with. Well, you could have picked up a rock and scratched it on the sidewalk. And that was the end of that conversation. I remember feeling at that point stupid because I didn't pick up a rock and write the license plate on the sidewalk. I didn't know enough at that time to even look at the license plate. And I felt very diminished and invalidated because if I wasn't smart enough to find a rock and scratch license plate number on the sidewalk... I really didn't have much value. Kind of ended at that with, you're stupid. You really, in my opinion, that's what came across. So I think of that from time to time. And I, I try to push that away. Nightmares. Severe nightmares. The nightmares I had as a child were all, they, they all had a common theme. That I was going to be abandoned. I would come home from school and my parents had moved. Not only had they moved, but the house was gone. I had come home and walking home from school, Frankenstein starts walking up the street and I try to get into my house and my mother closes and locks the doors. Those were my recurring nightmares as a child. I can look at those now and realize I felt I was in constant danger and my mother was not going to do anything to prevent that danger. I think we spoke of this in the last episode, avoiding reminders of the event. When my grandson died, I could not... The cemetery in which he's buried is probably like three minutes from my house. I couldn't go out of my subdivision in that way where I would pass the cemetery for several years. I just, I couldn't do it. Losing him was just too traumatic. Watching him die. Watching my daughter watch her son die. Watching my grandson watch my grandson die. Watching my kids watch my grandson die. It was just too much. So I didn't do that. I would go around the place where I had been hit on my motorcycle. You know, things like that. And These were things as an adult, as a child... I can't really tell you a lot about that. But as an adult, that's sort of what happened. Uh, We have memory loss. And I think a lot of memory loss is self-induced. I know it is in my case because if something starts to bubble to the surface and I kind of have a feeling what it is, I'm trying to push back down because I'm not ready to remember it. There are things even now I can't remember. I just, it's like the hands. I see the hands coming toward me, but I cannot remember the face. That's really kind of creepy because I think if it had been a stranger, I might be able to remember the face because it would be more safe had it been a stranger. But, it, you know, those are. that's just one example there of memory loss. And I do have a problem with my memory from time to time. I can remember things from my childhood a lot more. I remember talking to my aunt and she's like, wow, you've got a really good memory. Well, yeah, because I didn't have that many great things to remember in childhood. So the great things that happened, I remembered. And I do remember things. Um, but there are times I just can't grasp that memory. Negative thoughts about yourself and about the world. To me, this world sucks. Not this entire world. A lot of the people I keep at arm's length. I don't want them too close to me. I used to, I thought, but it was kind of a surface level thing and it was a seeking validation and it was, I think since I had that foundation as a child, knowing that there were safe people out there that loved you, I was sort of continually on the hunt for the safe person that would protect me and I would be okay. I didn't know at the time I was gonna be able to protect myself. That whole concept did not make sense to me. And you know, everything that I did, I remember a lot of the negative feedback I would get. And that really made me withdraw. I remember one time, and this doesn't go to my aunt really at all. It goes to my negative thoughts and the way I saw people at that time. I was little She had made a lemon cake. We were over at her house. She had made a lemon cake. And it wasn't my Aunt Susan. It was my Aunt Sandy. And my cousin and I were sort of like picking at it around the edges. She was such, she is, I guess, still an excellent cook. We didn't know she had made that cake for later. We just knew that that thing was good. And so we're like picking around the edges and things. And she came up to me and I was mortified. I was scared to death that she was going to either beat me or she was going to give me away she was going to make me walk home she was going to abandon me so you know I had very negative thoughts about myself in the world and what people would do I, I didn't have a realistic view of yeah I did it I'm sorry I didn't mean to it was just so good I was terrified. Self isolation and feeling distant. This is something that we went over before. But yes, self isolation and feeling different are distant. I have always felt distant from people. I think there was one girl, Angela, when I met her, we instantly connected and I felt I could tell her anything. And that was because what I saw in Angela was myself. I saw myself 15 years younger and I knew I could trust her and I would be able to tell her anything, anything. But other people, no, no. When your parents don't believe you, when your parents uh, dismiss everything you have to say, who else is going to believe you? If your parents don't care enough, no one else is going to care enough. And I know that's not true, but that's still really something I struggle with. I've tried to reach out to my Aunt Susan. She, I think for some very good reasons on her part, is questioning that. And I think she has been, there is a conspirator in our midst that has caused havoc, lies, and destruction. And I don't know if my aunt is thinking about what this person is saying that is a pathological liar. You know, part of me really wants that connection, but I'm afraid of it because what is she going to do? She's going to read my text to never call me back. It's scary. It's really, really very scary. And one thing I want to emphasize is if you have been in a situation with your loved ones and you don't feel validated, you don't feel heard, you feel rejected, seek help seek not an unsafe person that's going to take all of your information and use it against you later seek out a therapist and don't just seek out any therapist get recommendations read reviews interview them find someone you feel comfortable with because i'm here to tell you not every therapist is your best friend Anger and irritability. I'd like to say that I have never had that, but I have. I've had very inappropriate anger and very appropriate, or inappropriate anger and inappropriate irritability. Didn't know it at the time. I thought that it was justified in some way. And some of the things that I think about horrify me at this point, thinking that I allowed myself to have past traumas. I guess, have control over me to hurt someone else with my anger, my irritability. That's not acceptable. That's something I'm working on. And you know what? For the most part, it's going pretty well. I've learned to detach from a lot of things. I think that's really key in, in, in a lot of situations, especially if you're still in a situation with someone that, that you don't exactly Uh, vibe with a lot of times and you push each other's buttons you have to learn to detach you know people that have been traumatized may lash out for somebody at someone and in the heat of the moment it seems very justified but afterwards you stop and you think what the heck just happened that was totally irresponsible but you're too ashamed to talk to that person, or to say anything. And my gosh, I have become such a different person in just being able to recognize that and say, what the hell? What the hell, Terry? Reduced interest in favorite activities. Uh, my passion has always been photography, drawing, photog- photography, drawing, things like that. It just seems like an effort now I still look at things the way a photographer looks at things. I'll see things and I can frame it in my mind. But to actually gather my gear and go out, it's hard. Especially with a situation that happened that we're going to go into in a little bit. Um, It makes it difficult because there's a lot of trauma associated around that. So let's get to the next one, which we all know is hypervigilance, that hyper awareness I want to sleep with my door shut. I want my window open, though, because I have planted bushes around there with very sharp little thorns. And I have a German Shepherd. But yeah, I'm hypervigilant. I'm hypervigilant in just about every area of my life. Difficulty concentrating. Anyone that knows me can tell you my concentration skills are not up to par. Because my mind, I think, is so busy thinking, what if, what if someone's behind me? What if this is going to happen? What if that's going to happen? That it's really hard to focus and concentrate on things. I, I've had a difficult time getting through these books. So I've bought the audio book as well. And that really helps me focus. If I'm reading and I'm hearing, it helps me a great deal. Insomnia, we know that. I've always been afraid to go to sleep because I didn't want the nightmares. I knew the nightmares were more scary uh, then lack of sleep, those freaking nightmares would just get, they need to go away. But one thing, you know, one nightmare I used to have continually was my son, my oldest son, his father and I were getting a divorce and Cole had to stay down there with him until I could arrange to bring him back up to the DFW area with me. And I had dreams for years that Cole had fallen into a river and I could not get him. The water was taking him away from me. That dream kept me awake probably for 10 years until I was able to sit down with a therapist and analyze it. Okay, what about it? Why is it Cole? Why is he a baby? And why is the water taking him away? Once I realized what it meant to me, I never had that dream again. Vivid flashbacks. Okay, I want to go into something that I have never publicly addressed before, at least in a platform like this. And it's because of shame, toxic shame. It's because of guilt. It's because I can't believe I allowed someone to do this to me. I can't believe how stupid I was in a lot of areas and... I can't believe it. At 16 years old, I didn't really realize what was happening. I was day raped. I only had a couple of dates in high school. I was 16 years old. I was day raped. And I got pregnant. I didn't know I was pregnant until, well, not even then. What started the the line down to figuring all of this out? Because I had no clue about things. My parents didn't teach me. They wouldn't let it. I mean, th- Let's just not go there. But I, I had no clue. I was getting sick at school. I was throwing up my food. I was passing out. I was having a terrible time. And we couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. I cannot remember how I found out I was pregnant. But it was later in the pregnancy. Uh, my son was due in May of 1979. What I do remember, a lot of this has blacked out. Um, I remember telling my parents I was pregnant. Or I told my mother. And then my dad came home from a trip. And I remember my mother calling me in to talk to my dad. And the only thing my dad said was, this pregnancy will be terminated. I was 16. I didn't know what to do we knew enough not to question my parents um at that time i think abortion was barely barely legal it took a long time after i told my parents for them to find a place i was almost six months pregnant um when they found a place that would accept me because it was had been you know such a long time I'm, you see, I'm struggling with this. Um, there's a lot of shame, a lot of embarrassment, a lot of guilt. I remember sitting in the clinic and I was watching the other women that were in there, girls, women, and there was one woman I was sitting like, like if I was sitting here, she was sitting across, across the clinic And she was talking about the fact that what every time that she had had an abortion, she told all the men that she had been sleeping with that it was theirs, and she would take the money, she would get the abortion, and have enough money to go on vacation. That in itself was traumatizing to me. I remember telling people, In the clinic I did not want this I did not consent to it this was not my decision and nobody listened to me they didn't care I was led back into a room and I was crying I was crying really badly and they got me on a table they gave me some medication and I remember a nurse was trying to lighten the mood like how do you lighten the mood if someone's going to murder your baby adoption wasn't even anything that my parents brought up. And I, and I all through that, I remember, I don't want this, I don't want this, I don't want this. And I was crying, 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 crying. And the, the nurse was wiping the tears. And she said, your ears are going to drown. And I'm like, my baby's dying. And it was so horrible. It was so impersonal. And when it was over, they got me off of the table and I remember looking down and I could see my fully formed son that was no longer in one piece I might as well go on with this story because I never told anyone that when my everyone, people Like my husband, my kids, I knew I had had a baby before that had died, but I didn't really tell them the circumstances. I didn't really tell anyone. I told my cousin. She knew about it because she had been pregnant herself and had gone through an abortion when she was in college. And we talked about it, but I could never be honest with anyone else about what had happened and how my son had died. And I made up this story, I, I think, to take the shame away from me and to protect my heart. And I remember it was at one of my worst times in my life, and my daughter was with me. And I don't remember how it came up. I remember I had moved out of the house. I was divorcing my husband. And somehow it came up, and I was crying. And I said, I don't think you understand... I, I wish I could remember the context of the conversation, but what I said was, and I, okay, so when I was like in my early 20s, I was involved with someone that was very high up in a government, um, a foreign government. And they had been keeping tabs on me. There were cartels involved I knew about. And it seemed more convenient to me it took the pressure off of me even though I didn't allow anything to happen, I told her that they had taken him and they had killed him which was not true in any way but that shows the extent of how emotionally traumatizing that was to me I cannot even go into science like we have OMSI here in Oregon or the science museums and learning places where they have models of babies at certain types times of gestation. I can't look at it. It's just too traumatizing. You know, after I told my daughter that, I just, I didn't know what else to say. I didn't want to tell her the truth. Because I was embarrassed and I still had that toxic shame, I guess, that was painted on me. So, that flashback of seeing my son was so horrible. And that was on February the 14th, 1979. And he was doing late May 1979. So, that gives you a bit of the timeline. Um, I wish I could go back in time. I feel very weak that I didn't stand up to my parents and say no. I have to remember I was just 16 years old and at that time you didn't talk back to your parents, especially my parents. But that devastated me. And then to think that I devastated my daughter with a lie because I was too ashamed to admit the truth. So yeah, those flashbacks are horrible. And they don't only hurt us. They hurt the people we love. Okay and we go to this one casting self-blame. Let's get out of that one because I, I'm really I'm having a hard time even even thinking about that even talking about that. Uh I did name my son. His name was Noah. Unfortunately I had to leave him where he was. It is an event I'll never forget. Okay so ca- casting self-blame. I think this is It's very common after a traumatic event, like I just explained to you, I blame myself and I have to realize I was just, I was very young. Um, It was date rape, which I never admitted to my parents. And I ended up with a barrage of names being hurled at me. My father wouldn't speak to me. My mother wouldn't speak to me. I remember my mother coming up to me afterwards. I know I'm kind of backtracking here. My mother coming up to me afterwards and she put her arm on my shoulder and uh, it, was, it was one of the only times I, rem- I remember my mother being tender with me. And she was telling me, no one will know. Don't worry, no one will know. And I lashed out at her. I sat up and I looked at her and I said, it wasn't me that didn't want anyone to know. It was you. You are the one that was ashamed. You are the one that was embarrassed. You are the one that caused this. And my mother didn't speak to me for weeks after that. But that was, I think, one of the first times I ever stood up to my mother. So let's get back to the casting (laughs) self-blame. People with PTSD may blame themselves for things that had happened. I do. I do very much blame myself for things that had happened, especially as an adult. And we can go into that. I'm trying to figure out what time we have here. We're at like, okay, um, I blame myself for a lot of things that happened after I got out of high school. And looking back on it, things that happened that I didn't realize why they happened. Uh, feeling less than. Getting into relationships where I had been beaten and abused. Getting into relationships that I knew were beneath me. And by beneath me, I don't, I don't mean that in any sort of an arrogant type of sense. I mean, people that were criminals, people that were scumbags. Um, I blame myself for that now. I blame myself a lot for that incident where the man tried to kidnap me and my brother. Because the, the words that my dad spoke made me feel so stupid. And why didn't you think about it, Terry? Why, why? Why didn't you think about writing, write it, writing it down with a rock? When in reality, in reality, had I gotten a rock and written it on the sidewalk, the guy would have stolen us. Self-blame is something that if, if you're doing, if you're blaming yourself for some, the trauma or something that happened in your life, a traumatic ex- experience that was not your fault, stop. And if you're blaming yourself for actions that you took afterwards that are related to that traumatic experience, I would implore you to stop and try to analyze that and see why you got into a situation that you shouldn't have been in. Why did you do that? I have a lot more to say on that. I'm I I, I I'm not really sure how I'm going to do this. If I'm going to put up a paywall or if I'm going to do this in se- separate segments of some of the things that I did some of the things that happened to me personally, they're, they're, they're pretty scary. They're pretty devastating and they all can go right back to my trauma of not feeling good enough and not, um, I think I, I thought all people were bad. So it doesn't really matter because I'm not worth it. So I'm just going to let this happen to me. Let's move on. Cause I'm about to cry right now. Difficulty feeling positive emotions. Uh, you know, I, I don't. I think when I was when I was younger, that was very much true. I have experienced very positive emotions, but now I question them uh, because of a situation that happened not too long ago that I'm going to fully disclose in another episode but I, I don't think I really had a problem with that but if you do have a problem with that once again I'd ask you to seek out therapy and somebody that's really good with trauma therapy people that have been through trauma they will know much more than your general therapist on how to help you through that exaggerated startle response if that door open right now I would freak out I would completely lose it. I do that continually. I mean, it probably happens to me four to five, six times a week. Risky behaviors. Risky behaviors are equally common among those who have undergone trauma. Individuals with a high number of adverse childhood experiences, like in the ACEs test I spoke of, are more likely to try substances at a younger age and develop an addiction Combat veterans fall into this category, too. Risky behaviors can include drug abuse, which I never experienced. Alcoholism, unsafe sex, which, yes, I I did. And that was not for a sexual reason. It was for I wasn't worth it. Who cares? I'm not worth it. That's what I was told. That's what when I say that's what I was told, I was told in words and I was told in, in actions and and, um, attitudes high adrenaline activities and behavioral addictions gambling shopping those who are coping with their trauma through compulsive comfort seeking should seek treatment as soon as possible my comfort seeking was very expensive lingerie and i i'm not kidding you i spent thousands on that I could very well, if I did not stay away from casinos, I could very well be a compulsive gambler. I'm not. I did not. I chose not to be a drinker or a smoker because, as I said, I saw my predisposition um, to be either an alcoholic or a victim of smoking-related cancer, and that's nothing I wanted. Thank, thank God, that I saw that firsthand, that stopped me. So that is a perfect segue into an ad break and since I don't have any sponsors right now I'm going to ask you guys to consider subscribing on my Podbean account because it is going to be video to I believe I have it set right. My Tattooed Biker Chick account you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and I do have another YouTube channel. Besides Digging Through Dominoes, I have the Tattooed Biker Chick. All of those will be linked in the show notes below. So I guess I'm the sponsor of my, this episode? Okay. So getting back to Kartner and his description that really aligned with what Vander had seen and his thinking there was another man, Elvin Simtad, if I'm saying that correctly, I don't know. Believed that a health professional should not rely solely on textbooks, that the real textbook was in the patients being treated. I see that all the time, and that's what I say. If you haven't been in my shoes, you have no clue what I'm, what you're talking about, so I don't need to hear it. It's like as a as a general contractor, there are a lot of times when architects will will submit plans, but they've never been in the field, they've never actually built the house and sometimes their plans that look beautiful on paper do not work. You cannot build what they draw. Not all the time, but some of the time. I don't know if that made sense. Really kind of delirious at this point. Simtad also stated something that I feel is so true, and that's the greatest lies are the ones we tell ourselves. And in thinking about that, I'm thinking, you know, I'm lying to myself about what happened to my son because Because his actual demise was so horrible. I never wanted to think about it. We lie to ourselves continuously. What are you lying about? Leave it in the comments. What is something you think you need to look at, be introspective about? I think we do it all the time. I think we do it in ways that we don't really realize. With me, I cover it up by my on-air persona which is also my rally persona for bike rallies or my public speaking or anything like that, I pull out another person. I pull out a person that that isn't really... It is me, but it is like the advanced version of me. It's the me that I want to be when I grow up. You know what I'm talking about? Hopefully that makes sense. So if we move on to... People on the outside of the treatment circle. So the treatment circle for me would be me, my therapist, and my psychiatrist. We're kind of a triad, not really a circle. But that's my treatment circle. That's my treatment support group. But people on the outside of that don't really want to know what soldiers go through on the battlefield. They don't really want to know how many kids have been molested, how many have been abused or neglected and abandoned. Much of the world would rather see life in a leave-it-to-beaver format where the family is a safe, haven in this chaotic world we live in it's not true it's just not true but unfortunately that is still portrayed as such and there are so many children out there that are still being subjected to emotional mental and physical abuse that's going to go on for generations until that cycle is broken we would rather believe those atrocities occur far away from our, our idealized lives we tend to put on blinders or many people do it's like with my son joshua and the blinders and joshua had some friends in school twin twin girls their mother was a stay-at-home mom. Their their father was an anesthesiologist. Their mother is running for office now, for national office, federal office. And I didn't know that. But after Joshua died, I reached out to her and her assistant said that she was going to get back with me. She hasn't. And that's been seven months now. I'm not going to say her name on the air, but that kind of is representative, okay, I'm, I'm going to represent you in Congress, but I really don't care what happened to you. That's sort of the um, feeling with a lot of people, or that's, that's sort of the attitude of a lot of people. They don't want to know. How are we going to change anything if nobody wants to know? We can't. After all, if we believe it, if we see it, we might feel some sort of an obligation to alleviate the suffering. If we allow ourselves to see, to feel, and really take hold of the suffering, we may feel it's not our place to intervene and therefore We draw this line, okay, I feel that's what happened to my son Joshua and why he is now no longer alive. We also, I think, may feel that if we allow ourselves to feel what these people that are suffering are going through, it may tilt our vision of the world on its axis and therefore may somehow creep in to their seemingly perfect lives, which are not. So perfect after all, everyone has something going on. And I know not everyone has the ability to help. Not everyone has that ability to listen. One thing I have to say is I had a friend named Lori, who was a really good friend. I had known her since high school. And when I was going through the roughest time of my life, one of the roughest times of my life, she would call me in the middle of the night and she would tell me jokes for hours. hours. To make sure that I would make it through. That's a friend. That's a friend. Not the one that says, here's some soup. Bye. Hope you're going to feel better. It's one reason I don't go to church anymore. Because, you know, even as a Christian, I can recognize the fact that many Christians will say, I love you. I'll pray for you. They don't mean it. It's just something they feel feel obligated to say. Am I going to get backlash? probably, but I really, you know, I don't care because it's the truth. I think another reason people don't intervene is it reminds them of what they've been through. And sometimes that trauma may be too difficult to bear for them. So many people when dealing with traumatized individuals, traumatized adults that suffered abuse as children, we go unnoticed, we're sort of uh, kind of invisible for so, so many reasons. There's so many reasons that I can't even identify. I think I've named a few. If you have any reasons that you think, please drop it in the comments. I really want to hear. Or you can always email me at digging through dominoes at gmail.com. I'll put that in the show notes below as well. And could that lack of understanding that shame that guilt for things that we didn't do to ourselves could that be part of the reason that m- many of us are so susceptible to mind numbing agents whether chemical financial sexual which i found not really to be sexual but to be um distracting Could that be why many of us resort to things of that nature? Overeating? Overeating, if you think of it, eating is a comfort. It's one of the first comforts we have. And as babies that really aren't nurtured by their parents, eating is the only comfort they get. There are many obese people whose root of that problem lies in lack of nurture I'm not saying everyone falls into that category, but I would really ask you to look at yourself. Are you trying to numb something by eating? Are you taking yourself back to a safe place, a fulfilling place? It's something to think about. I think so many that ignore those that they see that are obviously suffering do so because it is difficult. And they would rather watch in silence. I think that's also kind of like a source of gossip. I don't want to help you, but I'm going to project what you're going through. I'm going to project my own situation. And I'm going to use you as an example. And I'm going to talk about that. That way it takes the guilt off of me. It takes the shame off of me. And I can say, hey, it's that person over there. No, guys, don't do that. It's not cool. Maybe they don't want to tarnish their image. It's just too much work. And you know, when those things happen by these people that are ignorant or so caught up in their own world, what it does is it, in fact, re-traumatize us. Let's just add one more layer on this cake. I think my, my, my therapist the other day, he was pretty funny. He said, no, Terry, you're not a three layer cake. You're like a 137 layer cake. Like, yeah, I know. I know. And with him, I can take that because he knows the truth and he's not being mean. He's not being ugly. He's just saying, you know, you've got a lot of stuff you need to work through. You've been through a lot of crap. It's like, yeah, I know. I, I know. For those of us that are traumatized, neglected, or abandoned, abused as a child, or have been through traumatizing experiences repeatedly, many people don't realize that anything can set off or trigger us. Since, if I smell someone that wore the perfume my grandmother wore, I would break down crying. I think it's a a reason I want to sometimes make the food my mother made, the food my grandmother made, because of the smell, the texture, the taste, the sight, our senses. We can hear a song. We can feel something. And out of nowhere, we're transported back to that trauma. We can see a bathtub, and we're transported back. And all of those deep memories start to reemerge and we panic we panic we shut down we feel that we're alone and I want you to know that you're not but we feel we're alone in our suffering in what we're dealing with in our therapy even with a great therapist you can feel very alone and we end up suffering in silence we're afraid to talk to anyone because they may might think that we're crazy. We may not want to talk to someone because we don't want to burden them. I used to always tell my therapist, I hate bringing my problems to you. I don't want to dump them on you. And he's like, that's what I'm paid for. I do this. I said, but I don't want my trauma to affect you. Trust me, Terry, I got to take care of. I've got stuff I do where I debrief. So I've got I've gotten used to it now, but with other people, you know, it's still kind of like that. We bury so much of what we endured. I kept things buried. Little by little things started coming out after I started to rebuild, after I really hit rock bottom. And more and more has come out over the last two years. And when I want, you know, it's so funny because I'll be telling something and I'll have another memory. It doesn't trigger me anymore. It makes me want to write it down so I can let you know, hey, did you go through this? Are you afraid of bathtubs? Uh, do you see hands coming at you? Did your mom want to throw you away? Were you forced into having an abortion that you didn't want? Was your child taken from you? You know, things like that. I, I, I want you to know you're not alone. But when we do suffer in silence and we try and keep it quiet, it leaks out. It finds a way to leak out. Either in our behavior, the things that we do to cope, are addictions, whatever they may be, or it comes out in physical manifestations. Headaches, nausea, backaches, aches and pains, unexplained illnesses, continual illnesses. It comes out some way. Stress takes a toll on the body as well as the mind. Victims of childhood trauma, which includes, as we know, abuse, neglect, abandonment, physical abuse, sexual abuse accounts for 50% some studies say of the people seeking mental health treatment. That's a lot. That's a lot. Some of us suffer in agonizing pain and guilt over the things that we had to do to survive, the things we had to do to make it through the next day, the things that we had to do to make sure we weren't going crazy, the things we had to do so we could hang on to life. Sometimes we hold on to the people that hurt us and we cling to them and we idealize them because it's a connection and we haven't had a connection And that's a connection. Sometimes we try to cling to those safe people that were in our lives because they make us feel better. And then we're only abandoned again. Sometimes we seek relationship after relationship only to be re-traumatized. And our wounds grow deeper, darker, and much more difficult to handle to realize, and to cure. We allow ourselves to believe no one is safe, and we let those old tapes continually replay in our minds, in our subconscious. We often get confused as we're older as to why when we were children no one helped us, or why we didn't stop the cycle ourselves, I know many of us tried to stop the cycle and went way in the other direction, which only in many cases, my case included, I traumatized my kids by what I tried to correct. I didn't do it the right way. And I realize that now. Many of us blame ourselves for not being able to get out of the trauma, and that only does more harm. We don't see that we were children at that time. And as children... You can't help yourself. You can't really help anyone. You can give a flower to someone. Um, You could make people smile, but you cannot help someone in a situation like that. You're a child. You're helpless. There can be times that we feel we are holding it together. But what we fail to realize, we fail to realize that others, especially people that are close to us, do not want to admit that they allowed or aided in the abuse in any way. Sometimes they were too young. Sometimes they just didn't care. Sometimes they didn't know what to do. Sometimes they continue to blame shift themselves and see us as the cause of the problem and not the result of what happened to us. For some reason, that tends to make some people feel better. That, to me, is pretty unacceptable and pretty weak character, in my opinion. When we are calling out, numbing and desperately seeking, seeking attachment, any attachment sometimes, because we feel we are damaged beyond repair as we've been led to believe by our caretakers, our family, our friends, our therapists, our priests, our doctors, our pastors. We never seem until we are healed to form proper relationships with people that are actually good for us. Actually care for us and want the best for us. Those that are proactive in our recovery and allow us and accept us to be who we are and help us along that path. We need to stop thinking that we're always going to have to settle for less because when we do that, Those innermost needs, pains, and scars bubble up to the surface, and they spew out to everyone we love or care about, put us back into withdrawal, put us back into untrusting situations, or perhaps we push others away before they can push us away. Bessel van der Kolk says trauma results in a fundamental reorganization of the way our mind and body manage perceptions. It doesn't just change the way we think and what we think, but it also changes our capacity to think. That's pretty scary. He feels that telling our story isn't enough. Talk therapy isn't enough. It doesn't change the fact that our bodies are have been rewired and it doesn't change the automatic physical and hormonal responses in our body. We do remain hypervigilant, prepared to be assaulted, abandoned, or violated at any time. I think one of Vanderkock's most important messages that we're going to end on is for real change to take place. The body needs to learn the danger has passed and we need to learn to live in the reality of the presence. It's a very profound statement and it's also very difficult to do. With that guys, check out the show notes for anything that you may have missed, all of my contact information. And until next time, peace, guys. I'll see you later. Thank you for listening to Digging Through Dominoes. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. In the meantime, connect with Terry on Facebook and Instagram at Digging Through Dominoes, on Twitter at Digging Dominoes, and online at diggingthroughdominos.com. Until next time, thank you for listening.